0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Good afternoon and welcome to the Australian and New Zealand channel on the New Books Network. Today we are speaking with Professor Matthew Rickardson from Deakin University, heading up the Communications Department, and also Patrick Mullins, who is a Canberra-based writer and an adjunct academic that probably doesn't sound like he paid much, but you probably should, at the University of Canberra. They've written a book called Who Needs the ABC, which is an excellent book and it's published by Scribe. It's coming out in 2020. And for those who don't know, the ABC is the Australian public broadcaster. It's similar to the BBC or the CBC in Canada, publishes radio, television, digital. Anyhow, good morning to, well, Matthew first. Good morning, Matthew.
0: Good morning, Pete. How are you?
1: Good, thank you. Thank you for joining us. And to Patrick.
0: G'day, Dad. How are
1: you? Very good, thanks. Um, Yeah, I've received your book, read it. It's very good, very enjoyable. I like media stories. And if you have any interest in the way media is changing, this is a very good book to read. We had Matthew on last year. We wrote a book about the changes in print journalism. So this seems, if you want to read two books, there's that one and then there's this one. Um, anyhow, I'll begin by asking, um, well, will ask Patrick. Patrick, how did this book come about?
2: Um, this is probably a question better for Matthew, um, but I think I, I've heard enough of the answer to be able to answer <laughs> it. So I can do it on his behalf, if you'd like. Um, back in, I think it was about 2018 or so, um, listeners may recall that Michelle Guthrie and Justin Milne, the erstwhile ABC managing director and ABC chairman, both exited the organisation within the space of about a week. And really that in and of itself is quite a sensational event, but actually followed four substantial turbulent years during which the ABC has been under attack from right-wing critics in the commercial media news organisation, as well as a long campaign of political um, bashing up, basically, the ABC. And so at the time, Matthew... (laughs) was struck by the idea of writing a book about the ABC and what was going on and trying to understand the context in which it was being attacked. Um, and he approached me late in that year to talk about doing a book on this. At the time, we had the idea of doing something that was going to be short and sharp and out in time for the 2019 election. Um, that didn't happen. It took us a little bit longer to get, us, to get things together and to get the book together to a point where We thought it was actually kind of cohesive
0: and working, Um, but it came And in fairness fairness to both of us, less listeners think we're sort of sloths lying about doing not much else, Um, Patrick had written a very large biography of uh, Sir William McMahon, uh, one of Australia's least loved uh, prime ministers, and he also was working on a book about um, the censorship trials of the early 1970s involving the publication in Australia of Philip Roth's Portnoy's complaint. And as you mentioned earlier, Bede, that other book that uh, you talked to me about last year, that was um, a pretty hefty undertaking, which was preoccupying a lot of my time. So the best laid plans got kind of pushed back a couple of years, basically, is what it amounts to. Um, But Patrick, pray continue with your narrative. <laughs>
2: well, the other point that I think factored into this was that as we got further and further into the book over those three years between its publication and the idea, um, is we actually found there was quite a big story to tell and wrangling that together and bringing out its various facets took longer than we had envisioned. Uh, and what we found too was that the case for a defence of the ABC actually became more and more acute over those three years. Um, So since 2018, there have been funding cuts and efficiency dividends imposed on the ABC and additional um, campaigns against it that warranted the book. So there's on one hand, the idea catalyst for it in 2018, um, the need was acute, but the need became more and more acute, we think, over the three years since. So we're actually kind of grateful that it's come out in 2022 when the case most urgently needs to be made.
1: Yes. Neither of you work for the ABC. Why did two people who have nothing to do with the ABC consider it important
0: that a book be written about the ABC? Well, it's true. It is true. Neither of us have worked uh, formally for the ABC. But I think it's a really interesting question. I don't think if someone was going to write about, I don't know, let's say Channel 9, the Channel 9 uh, media empire, if someone was writing about that from outside Channel 9, I don't think that question would necessarily be asked, you know, because it's entirely the norm that people who are writing about the media um, might be from inside, but equally likely from outside. So it was more, but but what I think that goes to, what I think your question kind of subliminally, if you like, goes to is the sense that it is a national public broadcaster and it's an organisation about, which many, many people have very strong views. Either they, they love the ABC or they hate the ABC or they think it's a hotbed of left-wing radicalism or or whatever. But they everybody um, has a view about it, at least partly because it's a publicly funded broadcaster. You know, our taxes, all of our taxes pay for it. But equally also, I think it goes to the fact that the ABC now, because it's, this is its 90th year, you know, we're celebrating that, in fact, this month, June, and it's it's deeply embedded in Australian life, whether in the cities, out in the country, whether among, you know, people who like kind of English comedies and English dramas, or whether it's people who watch Rage on a Friday night who are most likely younger or Get, you know, grew up on Triple J's Hottest 100, or whether it's, you know, uh, satires like Sean McAuliffe's Mad as Hell, or the news, you know, the Four Corners programs, things like that, Four Corners having been around for, you know, since 1961. Um, there's so much, so vast a range of programming, and now um, it reaches so many people around the country, and, and we'll probably come to this, but the, the role of the ABC in the country in rural areas you know is is, is integral to its history and um, and so you know all of that I think goes to why in a sense you asked that question because um, and it's because everybody has a stake in the ABC and almost everybody has a strong view about it
1: hmm there's with with the country there is a, a question about that I want I did want to ask might as well ask it now there's Sections in the book, as I understand it, talk about the importance of particularly radio in the country. People can, could get news or could get information on the radio. That's a very functional role of a media organisation, a national broadcaster, the sort of typical governmental duty. The A lot of the other parts of the book also talk about shows on the ABC that just have a commercial or a, a popular appeal. So there seems to be almost two dimensions to the organisation. There's the part that is the the duty the, the duty of an all national broadcaster to transmit information, and then there's the other part that this is just also
0: an enjoyable thing to have. How do those two things balance? Well, I think um, I mean it's it's in it's in the ABC Act, which came in in 1983. It was updated from its original. Legislation, but the, the ABC—it's—it's it's required by legislation to be both a comprehensive national broadcasting service. So that kind of goes to your point about the country, as in it needs to reach all of us. You know, up in Cape York, over in Carnarvon, you know, down south in Launceston, and so on, needs to reach all of us. Um, but it's also it needs to inform and entertain the community. That's those are the words that are used, and entertain is as important as inform. Um, so and 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 it's both. It's not it's not simply a bowl of muesli, which is you know is good for you, but is pretty chewy. Um, nor is it kind of you know crass uh, commercial uh, reality TV shows, which. Clearly are entertaining, uh, but but much less clearly much else. So that's that's there in their legislation, and and you know it shouldn't surprise us that the people who work there take that seriously and try and um, do that. Whether. We're a commercial broadcaster uh it's its role and um is is to at the very least it needs to make money it needs to not lose money and so it, it it's always doing that dance between trying to produce programming that that it its makers might think is interesting and creative and so on, and which needs to have wide appeal and, and and win ratings and so on. So, you know, there's different sections of the media and commercial broadcasting is important. There's no doubt about that. Uh, but specifically in the ABC's legislation, it's required to do those various things. Yes. The start of the book has a
1: chapter called How the Internet Broke the Media's Business Model and... You as the authors go through a lot of historical events. A few of the, the features that are made are now that journalism tends more, in newspapers, I think everyone sees this, tends more toward having articles that deal with opinion rather than journalists out, out on the streets finding news stories. The, the collapse of local newspapers and the collapse of jobs. And I've got a note here, but I can't... Um, Here, yeah, it says this is this line that says all this meant that media and news companies needed Google and Facebook a lot later than a lot, a lot more than the latter needed them, and um. And I think one of the sort of funny parts there is that even now we've seen things like Facebooks already has has already become outdated. So even the, the very the very media models, the new digital models, are hard to keep up with. Um, what? How does this change relate?
0: what's the relevance to the abc specifically about this change okay all right it's a it's to do with business models and the facebook comes in you know because um, and google because as as you rightly say they had a big they have had a big impact on the long standing business model that supported what were primarily uh, print media companies who got most of their revenue not all of it but most of their revenue from advertising and and the phrase that has been used by various analysts is that Facebook and Google built a much better mousetrap. Um, that is, they they can, they can get so many people coming to them, you know, whether to search for things on Google or whether to, you know, share news and views and family snaps and all the rest of it on, on Facebook. Um, that is like a honeypot for advertisers. It's a much more potent honeypot than what the... Old newspaper used to offer, which was, um, which was certainly efficient at the time, but it's been outmoded. It's been superseded. So much of the revenue that used to go to big newspaper companies got hoovered up and out by Facebook and Google. So they they had a they have had a business model problem. It's not that people are less interested in journalism. Say it's just that they, uh, the companies, were losing money. So they started to worry about that. And as you know, from, from the upheaval book last year that we talked about on your program beat, you know, that one of the ways they reacted to that was by laying off a whole lot of journalists. And that book was all about what happens to those journalists and what does it mean for journalism and so on. Um, so that's what's happening in the commercial media sector. That, that doesn't affect the ABC in anything other than a good way in the sense that, their material is because it's funded by the taxpayer. Uh, that they're happy and willing to give it away for free. Like you don't have to pay the ABC to watch their programs or to look at their pod, uh, listen to their podcast, or or go online or whatever. So at the same time that the commercial media companies have got a business model problem, the ABC doesn't, and so it massively extends its reach and becomes much more of a competitor. Inadvertently to the uh, commercial media companies, so that's that's why Google and Facebook are very big in terms of um, the impact on the commercial media's business model, and all they do for the ABC is kind of amplify its reach. That's so. That's the that's what's happening there.
1: Okay, I'll jump ahead. We might have to go back and forwards in this book of yours. I want to jump ahead to talk about the. Um, one feature of the ABC in Australia is its influence on Australian culture. And um, sections of the book, or when you read through it, I mean, you've already, I think Matthew's already made reference today to shows like Rage and Triple J, is that if you go through the ABC archives, you actually get a historic capturing of Australia, almost almost like a document of Australia, and it's now within people's memories and Long-running shows. I mean, I remember personally there was a news reader called Peter Collins on the ABC once in Sydney. I used to work at a hardware store when I was at university, and this lady came in and I recognised the vo- heard this voice I recognised, and I saw her credit card when she paid. My oh, I is Peter Collins? I always remember that. It was like someone walked out of the ABC into real life. <laughs> um, but what, what is the ABC's influence? Who, who's best to handle that question?
2: Um. Sorry, can you just repeat the question, B? I I just didn't take the, the end of it.
1: cultural influence. Just comment on the the cultural influence of the organisation. Sure.
2: Yeah. So the ABC's cultural influence, um, as we say, it's the, the broadcaster is coming on its 90th birthday, and so that influence is something that is not only wide in the sense of going across the country, but is also extraordinarily deep. Um, the ABC, being broadcasting for 90 years, has had the ability to shape and reshape. and and to reflect various parts of this country's national identity, which is obviously in accordance with its charter obligations. Um, And so its influence has been felt across the fabric of this country Um, in the sense that, for example, you watch the cricket each summer. The ABC is the broadcaster that built a national audience for the cricket by broadcasting it around the country in the 1940s, 50s and 60s until, of course, it became such a lucrative Um, opportunity, such a lucrative commercial opportunity that commercial media providers in nine swooped in to take it over. So on one hand the ABC does this amazing kind of work in reaching across the country to various audiences to various people and building up then this archive and this immense reservoir of goodwill and cultural memory as well. Um, We can think about the ABC as an incubator for artistic and creative and journalistic talent Um, There are many people who've come on to ABC programs and got their starts there who then move on into commercial media organisations. There's a line we quote in the book, I think it's Sam Chisholm, saying that, you know, ABC, you breed them, we'll poach them, we'll take them and keep them. Um, And there are many famous examples of of that happening um, throughout the ABC's history. Another thing that I think is really quite important about the ABC's cultural influence is that because of its obligation to appeal to every single one of us Australians, it has this way of kind of reaching into your childhood, grabbing you when you are very young and keeping a hold of you as you get older. You think about the ABC's children's programming through, say, Play School or the Wiggles um, or its current TV stuff. Um, It gets you when you're a kid. When you become a teenager, you start listening to Triple J. Um, When you get a bit older than a teenager, um, say you get to my age, you start listening maybe to 2 J. Um and then as you get older yet again, you maybe move on to you know Radio National and to the classical stations and so on. So the ABC's got this ability to get people while they're young and keep them listening, keep them involved. And because of that pervasive and deep and rich presence in their lives, then it has an effect of of contributing this national identity, offering something that unifies all of us. Um, And so in doing so, it becomes not only pervasive, but also powerful. We get a sense of our country. We get a sense of the links we have to one another, whether we live on one side of the continent um, or in the West, say. And what that gives us then is this, you know, a good sense of the fabric of this place, of where we are similar, where we are different, what we share, what we don't share too. Um, One of the great things the ABC is able to do is actually show places where we're different. And that's really interesting and really useful too. Um, and it does this, obviously, without a commercial edge, another differentiator.
0: Can I can I just add to that, actually, because there's a, another interesting parallel with the commercial media here in the sense that a colleague who's at Deakin has been talking to me recently about how, in his words, he can't see the on-ramp for um, much commercial media these days. So if you look at the, let's say, the nine newspapers, historically, um, people wouldn't necessarily be sitting down with the Sydney Morning Herald or the age when they were sort of six or seven but the the thinking in the newspapers at that time was that doesn't matter once they become adults and they start to either you know want to buy a car you know get a job or buy a house or rent a house. Suddenly they will come to us because at that time all of those classified adver- advertisements were. That's where you used to go to them for. So they would start to look at the newspaper, and then as they, you know, set down those sorts of adult roots in your life, there, and uh, they would start reading newspapers. Because that, so that was the strategy. Uh, but as we've said, that much, not all, but much of that. Advertising has gone elsewhere. So you're kind of reading those papers now if you're interested in news and entertainment and information and so on. But where's the, where's the on-ramp? Where's the starting point for where those people start to get interested in them? And if it if it isn't kind of in, uh, inculcated in them early as it is in the ABC, you can see why there there is some nervousness in those companies about where is their audience coming from and how kind of long-standing or long-lasting and sustainable is it.
2: Hence the, was it the Oz? I think the junior, the young Yes. The, the, oh, yes.
0: yes. <laughs> kind of, yes. Well, I, I haven't looked at it closely, so I won't comment, but um, yeah. Okay. So if I if, if I knew nothing more
1: about the ABC than what you have just said then, I would think this is a great thing. Why then, for example, in your book, one of the first ongoing lines of criticism, a criticism from, I guess, what people would sort of stereotypically maybe call right wing columnists, Piers Ackerman, Gerald Henderson, those type of people, News Corp. Where where does that hostility come from? What's the point of that?
0: well um it, it's two there are two sources really I think one is ideological and one is commercial um, there's a long history of the commercial media being either wary of uh, publicly funded broadcasting or um, and, and at the least in worrying about how it might encroach on its territory what it sees as its territory and that goes right back to rupert murdoch's father sir keith murdoch and the the very very early days of the abc when um, Sir Keith Murdoch, who ran, among other things, the Melbourne Herald, which was an afternoon newspaper, wanted to make sure that people could buy that afternoon newspaper on their way home from work. Um, but so so that so that broadcasts of news needed to be run after that, so that people would have continue to have the opportunity to buy the afternoon newspaper. So so that strand, if you like, comes right through to the present day in terms of commercial self interest. The other is ideological. I don't think it's going to surprise too many of your listeners to know that, you know, and, and know that Rupert Murdoch and uh, newspapers and news outlets that he runs tend to lean to the right. Okay. That's not, I don't think, a controversial statement. What's happened in the last decade or so with the rise of social media is that the business model, the tweak to the business model for commercial uh, media is to is to um, not in Australia be a kind of a middle of the road uh, news outlet, which historically newspapers were, you know, leaned a little to the left or a little to the right, but basically needed to appeal to a broad audience in order to survive commercially. Now, because of the uh, all of the noise of social media and the the kind of atomizing of our attention that the internet has enabled. What the news organisations do is they appeal to a particular demographic, and they get they they both get and feel they need to get very, very loud and partisan in order to talk to them. So, yes, news corporation Australia newspapers historically have been antagonistic towards the ABC. What's happened in the last um, ten years or so is the, the the volume has been turned up to eleven on that.
1: Mm. And on that point, Matthew, with the commercial media thinking it's their territory the ABC is encroaching on. From a a journalist's point of view, that would seem not to matter because the journalist has a job with any organisation and as long as there's a consumption of media, there will be jobs. It seems to be a profit-directed criticism because, in other words, saying if you don't buy the Daily Telegraph, we don't get the profit from that sale. Is 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 it... what, does it go deeper than that or is it really a, a oh, sort Oh,
0: that's a large element of it. And, and there, is, there, is, there is definitely some... It's That's not a specious or spurious argument. It's more to the point, though. It's not the main source of their problem. The main source of their problem is fa- Facebook and Google, you know, taking away their advertising revenue. That's the kind of main commercial problem, you know, but they haven't been able to do anything about that the ABC sits there, you know, you know, known as Auntie, but in this sense, it's really Aunt Sally. It sits there to be kind of whacked around the head because they're an easy target and they won't fight back. Um, what has changed in the last couple of years um, is the the federal government, the fo- sorry, the former federal coalition government, at the behest of the news media companies led by News Corporation Australia, set up. An inquiry with the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission to inquire into the whole business model problem. I'll try and telescope the story, but but they found there was a problem. They found um, uh, it needed to be solved, and they came up with a thing, a, a body called the, or a, an entity called the News Media Bargaining Code, which basically um, forced media companies and Facebook and Google to negotiate. And for Facebook and Google to um, provide money to the media companies you know, like News, like Nine, like Seven West Media and others um, for the fact that they've lost a lot of revenue. That was basically what it was about. And so what that's meant is that between $200 and $300 million a year in Australia has flowed from Facebook and Google to the media companies, including some smaller ones, um, for the next three years. And suddenly, you know, there's more money in the industry to, well, hopefully to hire journalists and so on. So um, that that's kind of what's happening there. And to that extent, uh, that's been a solution to their problem. There are a number of critics in, led by a guy named Hal Crawford, who used to work at Nine MSN, who say that, you know, this won't last, and there's a whole lot of problems with the with the way in which the news media, sorry, the mandatory News Media Bargaining Code is operating. I should just add that Rod Sims, who was the head of the ACCC until earlier this year, um, is a very st- strong believer in the code, and he's just actually, in case your listeners are interested, he's just written a paper for the Judith Nielsen Institute which um, outlines both all of the criticisms of the code and his defense of them and and he his basic argument is because of the massive imbalance of power between Facebook and Google who are global tech behemoths as we know and media companies the mechanism of the code enabled that them to bargain and negotiate successfully. So that's why from that flow, the other various problems like lack of transparency and so on, that that various critics like Hal Crawford have made of the uh, ma- mandatory bargaining code. Mm, okay, thank you.
2: I think um mm. maybe one point to add just on this this one about
0: the criticism mm. of the ABC
2: is just a bit more on the political um, political campaign because there's definitely the commercial media part of it, but there's also been the federal government, in particular the Liberal and National parties, and their criticism of the ABC. Um, The coalition has generally for a long time been hostile toward the ABC, but it has been somewhat muted. Um, Graham Morris, a former advisor to John Howard, used to say that the ABC uh, was our enemy talking to our friends. Um, And there's a kind of ideological problem there for, for, for people in the Liberal Party, hostility toward government funded services Um, but one of the things that has has really you know leapt up in the last couple of years has been the temperature around that and one of the things that Matthew and I think about and, and kind of dwell on in the book is the extent to which the attacks on the ABC are motivated by a hope to kind of partly discredit a news organization that can't be um, cowed or seduced or kind of duchessed in the same way that a commercial media organisation can, um, and which is also a media organisation that has historically high levels of trust and you know engagement from Australians. So th- there's a kind of there is that political dimension, and that is a really palpable part of it um, and a way of understanding the campaign against the late ABC over the past nine years.
1: Mm. I was going to ask you on that, Patrick. How um, you've written on censorship? Do, how would, how does the government stance toward the ABC is? How does that factor into concepts of government trying to censor or censorship? How do you how, does the criticism have anything to do with that? The idea of government trying to censor in a way. Look, I,
2: I would I steer I would steer clear of using censorship uh, as the term around the ABC. Um, largely because censorship as we should best define it is kind of comes from the state and it's about saying we're going to throw you in jail or fine you if you do X, Y, Z. Um, Fundamentally, that's not really what's happening with the government of the ABC. The thing that has been happening with them has been this program of cuts to the ABC's funding since 2013. Um, This is now approaching, I think it's about $800 billion at the moment, and within a couple of years, the scale of those cuts, cumulative scale, will be in the vicinity of a billion dollars. Um, the, the what has been happening though has been a kind of, you know, bailing the ABC up and bashing them around their head constantly for various bits of reportage and for things that, you know, I mean, the quintessential one is, is Tony Abbott um, getting up and saying about the ABC, "Whose side are you on?" Um, the kind of that's a kind of public criticism, which on one hand is not great, obviously. Um, what's more troubling is the behind-the-scenes kind of beating up. Um, we note a couple of instances in the book where um, journalists are telephoned, their editors are telephoned, um, where people are denigrated and portrayed as being partisan when they're not necessarily. There's a kind of campaign of intimidation there. I think there is a distinction between censorship mm-hmm. and, and, and that campaign, but both obviously are very troubling. Um, and the way those have played out... You can talk about that in the context of Michelle Guthrie and Justin Milne's exit from the ABC, but you can also talk about that in the context of um, what's called the preemptive buckle—the ABC kind of bending over to to avoid trouble. We think that has played out over the last couple of years.
1: Mm-hmm. And do you see a, um, oh, the what we call the commercial media, might the commercial news media is is almost if there's a liberal coalition government in, in place. And they crack down on, or they make comments about the ABC. That almost then feeds into news stories that the opposite media camp, the commercial media, can run. So they almost feed off each other. They, they, they sort of self perpetuates. How do, would you could you comment on that?
2: Yeah, absolutely. The th- this is a, this is an issue again. It, this is why it can't be understood as one simple facet. It's kind of a lot of things thrown together, and they feed interdependently and, and are inter- interconnected. Um, that kind of relationship, though, manifests in, in, in very inst- very easy ways. Um, one of the instances we document is around various questions that the uh, then communications minister, Paul Fletcher, um, who's now not the communications minister, he was supposed to have sent these questions to Ida Buttrose. Um, on the morning that this letter was supposed to ru- arrive to Ida Butros. the Australian newspaper had a copy of it and would put it in the front page article. So you had this thing where the minister is communicating with the chairman of an authority that he's ostensibly um, overseeing, and yet he's also, the correspondence is also being funneled out to a journalist to run a story, being critical. Um, That's kind of been par for the course over the past couple of years, this constant discourtesy, this lack of respect, this kind of using the media to send messages, to make stories, to build this campaign, this critical mass where people will think, my God, the ABC is full of lefties and loonies. It's, it's just not necessarily the case. Um, and that's something that's been happening over and over again for the last nine years. And some of the voices that we note and that you mentioned earlier have been kind of part of that, have been doing that kind of work.
1: Mm. Um, well, I'll ask this um, for your thoughts on how should a government treat the ABC?
0: with respect i mean it's an institution let's let's useful to take the kind of abc out of it and think of it as a national cultural institution in much the same way that the national library is and the national archives are and the national museum the australian war memorial they're all national you know institutions that have been around for a variety of periods of time um, they all deserve not that not. I'm not talking about the people within them, although you shouldn't. <laughs> I'm not advocating mass disrespect for anyone, but it's not only the people within them, it's the institution. Um, it's like the office of the prime minister. The office of the prime minister should be treated with respect, regardless of who is the prime minister, as in regardless of whether you think that person um, is a good or poor occupant of that office. So it's that idea, and that that actually. B- b- before we get to anything else, is what has been kind of trashed and disabused by, by in particular the coalition governments of the last nine years. But you know, the other governments as well as well have done that. But but that's kind of reached some kind of a bizarre minor art form in the last uh, nine years or so.
1: Hmm.
0: Um, do you have anything to add there, Patrick?
2: Yeah, I mean, I'd just amplify what Matthew says because. The tone, to some extent, over the last couple of years, has been set by the federal government. The license that it seems to have given for um, those in the commercial sector to beat up on the ABC um, has manifested in ways that I think, you know, are just thoroughly disgusting. To be honest, a couple of years ago, um, some of your listeners may recall, um, Quadrant, which is a right-right wing magazine, ran an article um, suggesting that it would have been better had a bomb being planted in the ABC studios in Ultimo and blown up the audience of Q&A than the bombing that was that took place in Manchester at around the same time. Um, you know, to, to literally to publish within the pages of a reputable magazine, and Quadrant, whatever its current pages are, is a reputable magazine with a long history um, and a story in quite proud history as well, to, to speculate and suggest that it would have been great to have a bombing in the ABC studio, I mean, that's appalling, absolutely appalling. And yet I, I think that the tone around that has been set by people within the federal government, the former federal government, who have talked about the ABC as being, you know, not on the side of Australians, not on the, on the home team, being lefties, being socialists, being running amok, um, running campaigns. That kind of, This talk is, is fundamentally irresponsible and it's incompatible, I think, with the duty of a politician to hand on to successors in government, institutions in a better state than those they inherited. Um, you know, it is... You could look at the War War... A, a good comparison is the War War. Look at how it has been treated over the last nine years. Compare that to the ABC. We can see a lot of troubling signs for the ABC.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, well, I agree, Quadrant's got a long history. It's... <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Um, with, um, with the future of media, you often, or well, at least often, hear or think that there's a big focus on digital platforms, which is fair enough. They're in people's pockets all the time now. But I, I've spoken with people before on this who've worked at the ABC, and, they've, and they've, they're still saying still mainstream media sources are much more popular still. It's long. It's television, radio has a lot more listeners. How do you, how does an organisation like the ABC shape itself for a digital future? How, what what sort of, how would the organisation itself start to change? What would, what do you think is a bit of a speculation? What do you think will start looking different?
0: Well, I think they've already, they've already well and truly shaped themselves for both the digital present and the future in the sense that, yes, we, we, you know, older people such as myself think as the ABC is something that we grew up with, it was on radio and on television, uh, but its act changed in 2013 to reflect the fact that it it, it broadcast, not broadcasted, it produced media in it for the digital environment. Um, and. You know, if you look at the annual report and the statistics in there, which we quote in the book about the ABC's reach across Facebook, across Instagram, um, across YouTube and these, you know, it's 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 vast and deep and so they're already doing it and uh, and that that actually there's a there's a former chair of the ABC, uh, James Spiegelman, who's a eminent uh, jurist in his own right, as you would probably know um, who when he was chair said that even he thought that even people who worked at the ABC would be surprised at the range and the breadth of the depth of its activities um, so that and I think it's absolutely true I mean we certainly that was one of the things that Patrick and I found as, the, as we researched the book there's you know, the, the ABC's website and and what it has on it is not simply the news of the day. There's a great deal more of it than that. And there's, there's all sorts of, for example, educational resources um, which are made available, you know, to schools and anyone else interested across the nation, which provide all sorts of interesting and valuable information about a vast range of topics Um which you wouldn't necessarily know if you were just thinking, well, what what were the unemployment statistics yesterday or whatever? So I I think they've already positioned themselves well for that. And, I mean, as to what will happen in the next 10 years or so, who knows? I mean, if we'd been sitting here 10 years ago, I don't think it wasn't apparent in about 2010 or 11 or 12 the extent to which social media would be misused to, to promulgate misinformation and disinformation, Right, that kind of was, was only on the radar of really well-connected people as far as I could see. Uh, you know, that's only a decade ago. And and so I, I, it's hazardous, I think, to predict too far ahead. Um, we don't know what, for example, what impact the mandatory bargaining code will have. And indeed, if it if it doesn't continue, what impact that will have and so on. So there's, there's all sorts of variables there which are really hard to predict. Hmm.
1: Okay, um, we have to finish up soon. I have a couple of questions more about the book itself. Now, um, the first question is, it was it's published by Scribe, which is an imprint of um, Griffin Press. It, is there a, a particular reason why Scribe was chosen? Uh, well, Patrick could answer this.
2: <laughs> um, well, Griffin Press is just the printer, um, so Scribe is is a wholly its own entity. Um, I chose Scribe for a couple of reasons. One of them, very plainly, was simply that um, I already had a good relationship with Scribe. They've been the publisher of my two previous books. Um, but one of the things that also attracted us both to Scribe, and which I think it goes some way to to talk into the mission of this book, is that they've generally published books that I've engaged with and have been interested in shaping public debate. Um, at some level, this is a book with a bit of an agenda, in the sense that. We wrote it hoping to spread a popular message, defending the ABC at a time when it needs defending. Um, Scribe is a publisher that is, I think, very much in that vein. is interested in shaping culture, is interested in shaping debate, and this book chimed very well with it. Um, and you know, the immediate reception we got from Henry Rosenblum, Scribe's founder, and and um, was just exactly what we were hoping for. And in fact, his idea shaped the first chapter of the book of imagining the world without the ABC. Um, so that's why we went with Scribe. Seriously, good books is their motto, and um, I agree
0: with that. Mm, yeah, me too. Me too, and have been like that for well, Henry. I'm sure Henry. One wouldn't mind us saying he's he's not in the um, in the in the earliest years of his career. He's been around for a long time, uh, and he's published. His track record is of publishing for many years. Books doing exactly that kind of encouraging and and sparking public debate.
1: Okay. Um, next is the actual work itself in putting a book together. How did you, the pair of you, work on doing this? And I, just before I get you to answer that, the amount of the detail in this book, especially the notes that have that have been gone through, and even if this is just what, I mean, even, even watching things, it just takes, it's just time. It's, it
0: seems to just be so, such a long time to watch television shows and all the rest of it how did you well, I'm old remember okay so i <laughs> like i came into the abc watching the norman gunston program in year 12 you know like that's and the cricket as patrick mentioned like you know so so that's a long time ago you don't have to work out too long to work that out but um yeah well uh, you know i've been writing about and thinking about and researching media and journalism for a long time and patrick is um, has been doing that for a shorter period of time but is as the americans say a quick study so he um uh he he well he and i are both a bit we're a bit end note buffy we like um we like a good end note uh, <laughs> i think it's fair to say or 100 <laughs> well and look you know i don't know you, you do a phd and that gets bashed into you doesn't it The kind of obs- obsessive or need to be obsessive about chasing down every last reference and you know et cetera, et cetera. That's one of the great things about PhD training, I think.
2: I think just on the, the context of the writing process, um, be since I think that was the basis of your question, um, one thing I'd say is that um, writing generally, at least for me, is usually quite a painful and solitary process. You know, you kind of stagger out at the end of the day with, with your door having been shut and you're kind of just feeling a bit shell-shocked and a bit lonely and hungering for company. Um Writing this book though, in collaboration with Matthew has been you know, kind of unadulterated joy, um, just in the sense that you know, we get on the Zoom, we have a chat, we say, yep, this is what we wanna do. Hey, does this idea sound good? Yep, no, nah, let's improve that one, we can improve this bit. And it, it, it makes for quite a rich process because you can debate ideas and test them out amongst one another um, and, and and write things and give critiques to one another in a way that's just fruitful for the better it relieves that loneliness and that solitude, but also enriches the book. Um, I certainly think that, that, you know, if I, if I'd had this book on my own to write, it would be a much lesser work than, than what's here. Um, and I, I mean, I, would I don't want to put words into Matthew's mouth, but I imagine something similar might be said. Um, So,
0: you know, let let me see what words come out of my mouth. Um, No, no, that's absolutely right. I mean, I think I've I've said somewhere in the acknowledgements that having worked in journalism for many years. Journalist in journalism, you're encouraged to be a lone wolf in the sense that you know go get your story, go find a story even better, and and to do that, you're competing against lots of other people. So you kind of you hoard that story and you you know you bring it back to the to the cave, etc. Um, what I've learned in recent years in academia is the is the value and the virtue of collaboration, and and exactly as Patrick described, we kind of you you take a bit of the load of the project off one pair of shoulders and you share it, you exchange ideas, critique each other's work, lots of kind of jokes and fun, which, because I always think, and I think Patrick does too, that tends to make things just go along, you know, more smoothly. And um, so, yeah, I'm I'm all for collaboration and its virtues.
1: Mm. And I wanted to ask, who wrote the line? I'm sure one of you came up with it. The, The part of the sentence that says, much of which is as substantive as
0: gossamer and equally full of holes. That's Patrick. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, I think that was referring to the two chaps at RMIT who wrote that tomet about <laughs> public broadcasting.
2: I think yeah. that this actually might go to, to one point to make about the writing process too. One thing Matthew and I were determined to do was to write a book um, that was substantial and, and substantive. We didn't want something that was just going to be a polemic with kind of you know great language but absolutely nothing behind it, um, which is something we found when we were engaging with a lot of the critiques of the ABC. There usually wasn't much behind it. So when you speak to the, the detail and the footnotes that are there, um, we put in footnotes galore, obviously. One of the things we also did was we... Um, drew upon some research done by a man named Michael Ward, who's a, a scholar at the University of Sydney and a former ABC executive, who did deep dives into the ABC's funding, who did deep dives into comparisons of that funding with other countries. Um, who we, we drew on the work of Ken Haley, a researcher who, did, who looked at Gerard Henderson's Media Watchdog archives to find out about balance within Henderson's work. So... One of the things we definitely tried to do, and I think, this again, this goes to the importance of collaboration and drawing upon the expertise of others, is reach for that stuff that's going to be solid, that's going to be substantive. Um, Because when we write a line like that, and and Matthew has got some wonderful ripper lines in this book, um, we want there to be substance behind it. We're not just about the rhetoric, we're about the substance too.
1: Oh, good. Okay. Well, we'll have to wrap it up there. I'll just ask you both what you've got coming up. So, Matthew, what are, what's in the pipeline
0: for you? Wow, that's a good question. Um, I've got a project which I'm uh, in the you know time honoured uh, fashion. I'm not at liberty to discuss at the moment because it's confidential. But it's very very interesting, and you would be interested in be I know from your interest in the media. Um, I'm also working on some academic research projects uh, to do with local media and regional media. So that's doing that in collaboration with my colleagues at Deakin, uh, particularly uh, Christy Hess. Right. Okay. And
1: Patrick? Uh,
2: Some similar kind of caveat on, I can't say too much about it, but um, the thing I've got on my plate at the moment to finish up with uh, is a legal history. Um, So maybe up your aisle, bead. maybe not. I'm not sure. That (laughs) sounded too much like work.
1: (laughs) Yeah, no, I, I, was, I was actually going to say, Patrick, I might, I'm not sure if you, your, your book about um, port noise has been on the network before, because that might that sounds like an interesting book. Hmm.
2: It, it ha- I don't think I have been, but um, it, I, it is look. an interesting book. <laughs> <don't want> to... <laughs> Modesty for me saying that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> thank you, mate. Yeah, that's why I said it. <laughs> Collaboration. <laughs> well,
1: thank you very much. Thanks for your time. Um, The book is Who Needs the AVC? Why Taking It for Granted is No Longer an Option. And our guests were Matthew Rickardson and Patrick Mullins. Thank you both for your time. Thank you, Bade. Thank you very much, Bade.